folks, my name is Kim and this is The Contemporary Educator, a podcast dedicated to all my fellow educators out there who are trying to balance the many demands placed on the contemporary educator. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm on the unceded traditional territories of the Lekwungen peoples of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations. So today I want to talk about uh, resistance and specifically resistance in terms of trauma-informed care. So If you have been following along or listening to any of my other podcasts, you might already be familiar with essentially what I've been talking about in terms of uh, mental health and COVID and uh, what collective trauma is and the fact that because of the pandemic, the change in routine um, and the consistent mixed messages and the difficulties that we're, we're experiencing societally right now during COVID, there's a collective trauma that's that's kind of taken shape right now. And so this particular episode is going to be about resistance and how resistance is going to show up in classrooms and like what resistance really is. I've talked about this a little bit on my blog as well, um, also in terms of like mental health during COVID and, and language as well. And I'm a huge advocate for using resistance as a positive term as opposed to a negative. So we often hear about resistance in terms of like a negative. So for instance, we might hear that a young person is resistant to learning or resistant to a particular learning strategy that particularly in therapy or in counseling, um, like I've often heard people say that they're resist, young people are resistant to therapeutic intervention or a particular approach to therapy. And I want to get out of the mindset that resistance is a bad thing. Resistance is a sign, like any other behavior is a sign of something else. It's a type of communication and a way to communicate something, but it's not only communication. It's also a really powerful way of setting boundaries and holding space um, to find control in uncontrollable circumstances. And if we think about our young people that we work with as teachers, most of our young people are in very uncontrollable circumstances. There are going to be elements of their lives, of course, that they can control depending on what their home environment is like and and, uh, how they're doing in school or what the relationships look like with their peers and their teachers. But there's going to be all these situations in which our young people are trying to find control where they can't or they're met with, um, with a lot of difficulty. And particularly this pertains to secondary school, like young people are working really hard to try to find independence and to be taken seriously and trusted and valued for what they have to offer. And they're constantly being met with um, people telling them they're doing things incorrectly or um, people trying to redirect or not listen to them at all. So what I want to start looking at is resistance as a way for young people to actually start to regain some of that control and also to resist certain negative experiences that they may be having. And this is a good thing. So the strategies that they're employing, the types of resistance that we see, these are all ways that young people employ uh, strategies so that they don't experience they don't experience their trauma or their grief or anxiety to the same extremes in the same environment. I think it's important, of course, that we allow space for students to process grief, to process trauma, uh, but sitting in the middle of an English class or a social studies class may not be the best place for that to happen. It might not feel safe for the student to do it, and it might not feel safe for the teacher for the student to be experiencing or um, processing that stuff in class. 
So it's not about like shutting it down, but it is about acknowledging it. And what does resistance look like? This year, we're going to be seeing a lot of resistance and we're going to be seeing a lot of students employing strategies they maybe never have employed before. So students who may have once been a really engaged, uh, active participant in class may not be this year. And I've talked about that a little bit before too, just in the differences that we'll see in presentations of anxiety and depression. But I just want to take that one step further. Those presentations are the same. And I I do encourage you to go back and listen to that episode as well. But it's not just the presentation. It's also acknowledging that that presentation is an act of resistance. So for example, students might be experiencing a resistance to their anxiety, a resistance to that feeling of loss of control and loss of routine and resistance to change. And so we need to allow space to acknowledge that that type of resistance is good because students need to have the opportunity to experiment with which strategies are going to be effective and which ones are not. And right now they haven't been given opportunity because I mean, first of all, we left, at least here, we left school, um, you know, right at spring break and we haven't really been back. And so now that we're heading back into the school year and and here in BC, we are heading back into face-to-face learning in a modified format. But these students haven't had an opportunity to experiment with all of these different acts of resistance and finding out what is going to be effective. So the first few weeks of school, that's what we're going to see a lot of. We're going to see students trying out these new strategies for coping with anxiety that we haven't necessarily seen before. One example of resistance, it can seem a little bit abstract of a concept. So just something a little more concrete is um, dissociation. We often think of dissociation as something that, you know, we need to change or we need to address because it means that they're not dealing with their trauma or their uh, their grief or, or whatever they're dissociating from, the experience itself. Dissociation is an act of resistance. And so we need to change that frame of reference to start to think of dissociation as an act of resistance. So what would they be resisting if they are dissociating from something? Well, that can be a lot of things, right? They could be resisting that feeling of anxiety. They could be resistant to um, the teacher's questioning or, um, you know, maybe the teacher is coming at them from a a disciplinarian standpoint or an authoritarian standpoint, and the student is resistant to that kind of communication. Dissociation is um, a strategy that not just students, not just young people, but people all over the place employ to kind of check out from their current surroundings. So if you have a student who's not feeling school ready right now after the pandemic, or maybe they haven't felt school ready for a really long time, and you have a parent who is really encouraging the student to go to school, which of course there's value in that. You might have a student who uses dissociation to try to escape that intense experience of anxiety when they are in an uncomfortable situation. That's an act of resistance. That's resisting that kind of structural and systemic uh, system that we are trying to get students to function within. When students are anxious at school, that doesn't mean that they are necessarily an anxious student everywhere. Chances are this student experiences a great deal of moments in which they aren't feeling anxious. 
And it could be that their anxiety is very specific to school. And we often start to think of this in terms of, well, if they're anxious at school, they're anxious and they have an anxiety disorder, like generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety disorder. And we need to start thinking of that less in terms of what the disorder is and more in terms of, well, of course we're going to see that because they spend most of their life at school. The most times that we as teachers or staff at school are going to see this young person, it's going to be in the situation that causes them the most anxiety. So we need to start thinking of some of these behaviors that we might think of as as maybe negative or not conducive to learning or absorbing information. We need to start thinking of them as acts of resistance to that experience of anxiety. And so what we want to do is start to honor students' acts of resistance and maybe provide them with some different tools, but not start to see it as a disengagement. And so dissociation is kind of the the biggest one that we would we would see and we have to acknowledge that this dissociation can be a dissociation from a number of different things. They're not necessarily dissociating from your lesson specifically. They're not necessarily dissociating from the idea of school in general. They might just be in a, a state of anxiety right then that has been brought on by pandemic or by constant conversation about the pandemic that they're addressing with dissociation. We also have to remember that school can feel very dehumanizing to students. And I know that as teachers, that can feel a little insulting. And I know that for myself, as somebody who works really hard to try to make sure that my students feel safe, supported, and cared for in my classroom, it sucks to hear that sometimes students feel like school is a dehumanizing process. But it can be, and we need to be aware of that. And we need to be especially aware of that as we come into the new school year with a trauma-informed frame of reference. How can school be dehumanizing? Well, the expectation that students not eat in, in class or that they not be on their phones or that every single moment of their day is completely regimented and that students have to listen for the bell. When they hear the bell, they go to their B block class and then they sit there and listen to that teacher until the bell goes again and then they get 40 minutes for lunch. Like it's it's very structured and structure if, if we're not given opportunity to be a little autonomous in our, in our structure for our day, that can feel dehumanizing. It can feel like we're being treated just like one of the herd. And um, it can feel a little like your cattle just being shuffled from one room to the next. And when we regiment when students are able to eat, take breaks, etc., we're not seeing them as individuals who are going to have very different metabolisms and need to eat at different times. We're not acknowledging that a student may not have had an opportunity to eat at lunch or may not feel safe to sit outside in the designated eating areas at lunch. So there's lots of things that we're not acknowledging with that kind of structure and being rigidly um, supportive of that kind of structure. And so what happens with that is that we dehumanize our students a little bit and and there's a real loss of dignity when they come into the room and they're not able to follow that structure for any of the various reasons they might not be able to and they're constantly being kind of I don't know called out for not following the structure so you know for instance a student coming back from lunch who hasn't had a chance to eat and wants to eat their noodles and they hear from their teacher, no, nope, lunchtime's over. You hadn't you had an hour to eat. Why didn't you eat them then? Put the noodles away. Well, we don't know that student's story. And so 
Coming into this next year, it's going to be that much more important to pay attention to each student's individuality and start to move forward with that in mind because it's individuality that informs trauma-informed care. It's acknowledging that not every student has the same story. And it's also acknowledging that every student has experienced trauma and that may be a different level of trauma than another student, but no one trauma is greater than another. Furthermore, all of our students have one collective trauma that we too are experiencing right now that we can all relate to. So we need to be really delicate in our approach moving forward. And so that means honoring our students' individuality and their individual acts of resistance. So here are some examples of acts of resistance that I've noticed from my own personal classes. When I taught in alternative ed, which is where my background really is, and I've been at the current school that I'm at now for three years going into my fourth, but my last six years before that were all in alternative education. So I had a student who would often find herself in conflict with other students in class. And because this is all ed, we didn't monitor break times the same way. It was grades really 10 through 12 and adult education. And students were kind of allowed to trickle in as they needed to and trickle out as they needed to and take breaks when they needed to. So this one student would often find herself engaged in conflict with other students in the school. When the student would be asked about that conflict or called out for that conflict either by myself as a, as a teacher or by another student, this particular student would immediately pick up her phone and just start scrolling. And you could see that it wasn't even that she was looking at anything in particular. So chances are she was on Facebook or Instagram or, or Snapchat or something, but it was just a constant scrolling. And it would appear that she wasn't paying attention to the conversation and that she wasn't engaged in that conversation. And so you're faced with two options when you see that happening. One, you tell the student to put her phone away. You say, you need to be listening right now. This is important. Please pay attention. I can tell you right now that strategy is not going to be effective because what you'll be met with is a student who now feels in conflict with you because you're taking away their one coping strategy and their active resistance. So scrolling through that phone is an act of resistance to being called out, to feeling as though they are put in a position of lesser than, um, of having to listen to somebody who is in a position of authority, because this student has likely had trauma with authority figures before. That's what trauma-informed means. It's recognizing those little moments, or what appear to be little moments, and seeing the bigger picture, the significance of that moment. So the alternative, rather than telling the student to put their phone away, is to say to her, maybe now is not the best time to talk about this. Are you needing some space from it right now? Believe it or not, she's a student in this situation is often able to articulate to you that now is not the time to talk about it and that they are going to be willing to talk about it later. It doesn't mean you don't confront the conflict quickly to make sure that everybody is safe and to help de-escalate. But it's not effective de-escalation if you are causing a new conflict for the student to feel they have to respond to. So allowing that active resistance, saying, 
Thank you for using your phone right now as a way to communicate with me that you're not ready. Thank you for using your phone right now to help de-escalate yourself and to start to reground yourself so that we can talk about this. Is five minutes okay? Do you need 10? And then let the student guide that process a little bit more. Another example of an active resistance is when a student is constantly making excuses to leave the classroom. So I've had a student a couple of years now who frequently tried to leave my classroom and I had a really good rapport with this student. So the student would either show up late or not at all. And then when they did show up, they would find me in one of my other classes. They would check in with me and say, hey, I'm here. Here's all the reasons why I didn't come today. There you have it. Again, you're confronted with two options. One, you tell the student that there's no way they're going to pass your class if they don't show up. They need to be there every single day. You reprimand them for not attending, perhaps refer them to the principal or admin. The other option is to acknowledge that the reason this student isn't showing up to your class is likely due to an act of resistance. So what could this young person be resisting? Well, knowing this student, and because I had a good rapport, and because I I approach teaching from a trauma-informed lens, I acknowledge that my class is a, a tough experience for this student. Not because of me, it's not personal. It's entirely because of the subject matter. This student struggled with English. It, they weren't English second language, but the idea of having to sit and write an essay or a paragraph was very overwhelming and daunting for this young person. So in that moment, they were resisting me and the rest of the class seeing their struggle. And that is important to note. It's not that this student didn't want to find success. It's not that the student didn't like me. It's not that the student doesn't even like the subject matter. Chances are it's more to do with the fact that the student is saving face and not wanting other people to recognize their difficulty and struggle. Chances are this young person has experienced trauma in an English class before. They may have been put up front and center and asked to read out loud and it didn't go well, or their work was read out loud and they were embarrassed by it. There's any number of things that could have happened for this student to not feel safe in English class, but that's what they're resisting is that experience, a repeat of that experience. If they don't hand anything in, if they don't show up, I can't shame them. I can't unintentionally publicly share their struggle with the class. So keep in mind that that is another act of resistance. Here's a third example for you. A student not eating at scheduled break times. In high school, we notice this a lot less. But given that my room often is a bit of a hub for people to come and eat, I do notice when students aren't eating in class. I have a young person who experiences a lot of anxiety. And during scheduled break times, I was noticing that the student wasn't eating. But then during class, the student would ask if I had any food in my cupboard because I always keep food in my cupboard. And so again, you're met with two approaches here. One, you tell the student, no, you can't have food from my cupboard. You didn't eat at lunch. I saw that you had a lunch. Why didn't you eat it at lunchtime? Can you please make sure that you're eating your lunch during the scheduled break times? That's option one. Sure, you can address that. The other thing you could also do is 
and this is encouraged too, is to refer to the counselor or to, you know, somebody who might be able to support them with that. But the bigger thing here is asking yourself why the student might not be able to eat at lunch. Again, I have a pretty good relationship with this young person. So I was able to acknowledge that the student wasn't eating at lunch because they didn't want to eat in front of other students. They felt uncomfortable and ashamed of what their parent was packing for them. And lunchtime was a a point of uh, contention for this student. Knowing that their friends were all opening their lunches or maybe they bought lunch across the street. Whatever the situation, they felt embarrassed by the lunch that they had. So they wouldn't open their lunch kit in front of other students. So you need to be able to acknowledge that lunchtime for this student might be a time in which they experience a heightened sense of anxiety or they might have experienced past trauma. So the trauma-informed lens is acknowledging that that student not eating at lunch is a resistance to that feeling of shame and that feeling of discomfort. And this is a good thing and we can support that because the student has found a system to help them feel better, to help them feel more at peace in school. And if we can support that, what we can start to do is make sure that the student is eating. So rather than saying, no, you can't eat right now, you should have used your lunch time for that, we can say, yeah, sure, do you want to go out into the hallway? Do you want to grab an oatmeal packet out of my cupboard and and take it into the hallway? Do you want, you know, to grab a granola bar, come back in five minutes or, or eat it in circle? Whatever it is that you need to do to make sure that that student understands that it's okay that their act of resistance is to not eat during lunch breaks. The final one is the kind of opposite end of that spectrum, and it's snacking a lot. And so you might see a student who, you know, had clearly just finished their lunch and uh, is coming into class with a whole bunch more snacks. So for instance, um, I had a student a few years ago who would come in in the morning with Tim Hortons. Every single day they had a Tim Hortons bagel. So they would come in with their Tim Hortons bagel uh, and they'd eat it and um, the bell would go and they'd be finished it by the time the bell went and they'd already be pulling out their lunch kit and starting to snack on chips, their sandwich, whatever. Again, two approaches. Approach number one, can you please put that away? I know you ate breakfast. It's not a scheduled break time right now. Put the food away. Now you've got a student who feels embarrassed that they're eating or... um, you know, you've just stripped them of their coping strategy and their active resistance. The second strategy here or second approach is to consider why is it that this student wants to eat the full time during my class? Well, chances are this student has experienced trauma in that class before, whether it's that specific classroom, whether it's your class or whether it's your subject area and food is a distraction. Food releases uh, happy chemicals. We all feel good after we eat something. And this is why it can be challenging sometimes for students to self-regulate in terms of fullness and satiety, right? They will eat because it feels good to eat. So when you have a student who's got increasing anxiety and they're eating in class, that's an active resistance to that feeling of anxiety. So... What you can do in that situation, if you if it is a distraction, I never find that a student eating in class is distracting to me. It doesn't bother me at all. And then I often find that the student needs to eat less in class when they know that I'm not going to call on them all the time. But you can find space for that student to be able to eat in the hallway 
or um, if you are finding that it's constant throughout class, then just letting them know that you have no intention of calling on them if they're not comfortable, that you'll wait for them to raise their hand, whatever that is, um, that you'll start to, maybe that's a, I don't know, a classroom rule that you have, that you, you're not going to call on people without them raising their hand first. Whatever it is, there's ways that you can start to create space for that student so that they don't feel the need to employ that active resistance. So the bottom line is that an active resistance is against a certain feeling, thought pattern, or, um, or trauma response or traumatic situation, right? So we want to honor these acts of resistance because there's going to be other traumatic situations that come up in the future and it's okay to have resistance as your response to trauma. So in the moment, those kinds of things are important because when we think of trauma and we start to think of people when they disclose their trauma, they often hear that they should have done something differently or that they should behave differently. And so if a young person is feeling like their resistance to trauma is wrong, they're going to stop disclosing or they're going to feel shame around that response. And we don't want that, right? It's like a victim of sexualized violence. Well, why didn't you scream? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Rather than acknowledging that each of those moments during that trauma and afterward were acts of resistance in their own right. So we need to make sure that we're acknowledging for students what their acts of resistance are and allowing them to honor those acts of resistance for what they are. Ideally, we'll be able to begin to find ways to connect youth to resources so that they can talk about these things, so they can acknowledge their acts of resistance in a safe space, and so they can kind of dissect where that resistance has come from and understand it as a response to trauma. In some situations, it can be helpful to talk about the trauma itself. In other situations, it's not, and it can be really helpful just to talk about the social responses to that experience of trauma. But this is what I mean when I say that mindfulness strategies are not enough. So if you haven't listened to my last podcast on, on why mindfulness strategies aren't enough, why we need to understand them, go back and have a listen because we need to start to understand that we can do these mindfulness strategies as much as we want. If students are already employing different acts of resistance, these mindfulness strategies aren't going to connect to the trauma itself. So we need to provide ways for students to kind of break down what that act of resistance is, what the trauma is, and uh, what strategies are and are not going to be effective. The bottom line, like trauma-informed means that we understand the link between trauma and the behavior. And we also understand the link between trauma and the access or barriers to resources. And so when we look at resistance, we need to understand that an act of resistance in response to trauma is going to be different depending on the young person and their access to barriers or, or their access to resources rather and what barriers there may be to that resource. So we need to pay attention to that and we need to make sure that we're not using our privilege as an example for how to respond appropriately because there's no one right way to respond to trauma and we need to honor that, right? So coming at this with a trauma-informed lens means that we acknowledge that 
everybody's going to have a different response to trauma and everybody has experienced this collective trauma, the pandemic, differently. And there could be a whole myriad of other traumas that have occurred during, after, and before the pandemic that we are also seeing resistance to. That's the key thing that I want you to take away from this is that we can give students space to resist feelings of guilt, feelings of shame, feelings of disconnect. And all of those things can happen by allowing them to, um, to process their experience the way that they need to by acknowledging behavior as a communication and as a response. You'll hear me talk a lot about responses and that's because I, I practice therapy from a response-based perspective. And um, so I'm, I'm gonna do an entire podcast series on different therapeutic strategies and how we can employ some of those strategies in our classes in a safe way so that we're not therapists, um, but so that we are engaging meaningful conversation and dialogue, and so that we are trauma-informed. But this one in particular, this podcast was focused on response-based resistance to trauma and resistance to um, certain experiences and feelings that um, students don't want to experience and feel. So I hope that you got something out of this. I hope that you were able to kind of see the connection there um, and start to understand what trauma-informed means and start to understand, you probably have a frame of reference for it already, but start to understand behavior and how trauma-informed practice lends itself really well to addressing behavior and how we can create a safe space for students to exhibit all sorts of behaviors and to not feel the need to be rigid in our response to those, those behaviors. If you have any other questions about this or if you have any confusion around how to move forward with the trauma-informed approach, please subscribe to my blog. I answer some stuff on there for sure and I'm going to be continuing to update that blog. Every two weeks I have a new podcast and every intermittent week between that I have a new blog post. So whichever way you like to consume your media, go for it. You can also follow me on Instagram and I post a lot of things about this on my Instagram page too at teach.emote.repeat. And um, I do some IGTVs that, that discuss some of this stuff as well. So I hope to hear from you. And if you want to start a dialogue about this, or if you want me to cover any particular topic or idea, just shoot me a message on the blog at um, thecontemporaryeducator.com. And I really hope to hear from you. Take really good care and have a lovely rest of your summer if you're still on summer holidays.